Hello everybody, and welcome into episode 84 of the Diamond Duo Podcast. I'm Tony Puglisi, joined as always by my co-host and co-producer Tom Bauer to bring you everything that is up-to-date, new, old, in-between from this here MLB offseason. This episode of the program is brought to you by Michael K. No, not really. He sadly is not here, but he may or may not be the reason that you're here. And if that's the case, welcome. We hope you have a fantastic time. That is as good of an intro as I was going to think up this week, Tom. I don't know. This is not the longest hiatus we've taken. It's not even the longest hiatus we've taken this year. And for some mm. reason, that one just felt off. When when I can't compare you to serial killers this time, it just, it just doesn't feel right oh, to me. It doesn't yeah. feel natural. <laughs> well... Well, first of all, I would like to point out, and hi, everybody, welcome to episode 84 of the Diamond Duo Podcast. Technically, this is the longest hiatus we've had of this year, because it's 2024, and I'm pretty sure this is our second episode that we're releasing in the year, and I sure as hell know this is the longest gap in between those episodes. So you are factually incorrect. What you aren't factually incorrect about- uh, Yeah, yeah, whatever. What you aren't (laughs) factually- Yeah, here I go again with my complete nonsense and stupidity. Not even out of the intro yet. Yeah, I know. It, it happens all the time. If you're new to this program, I'm sorry for what you're about to hear, because <laughs> this happens quite a bit with uh, yours truly, Tom Bauer. Um, if you are listening to this podcast for the first time because you were a listener or watcher of The Michael K Show on uh, 98.7 FM ESPN New York, and also you you the totally Yes should. Network. Yeah, you should. It's the number one sports program in all of the tri-state area from 3 mm-hmm. to 6.30 p.m. weekdays. Yeah, welcome. Thank you, Dom, for throwing it to me to uh, begin to share on the spotlight of the Diamond Duo podcast, and thank you for watching and listening to the Michael K show, and also listening to this show. Uh, hopefully, we can be just as entertaining, although that will be very, very difficult to do, because the likes of Michael, Don, <laughs> and Peter, I mean, they're highly entertaining in itself, so it's going to be very, very difficult to top them, but we will do our best. But, if you love baseball, and you love good vibes, as Tony once said on this podcast at some point, then you're in the right place. Welcome aboard. Absolutely. Like, no offense to us, but if we could even hold a candle to those fellas over at the K-Show, that would be pretty cool, to say the least. Tom, you texted me that on Monday, just like, hey, Tony, casually just plugged us on the Michael K-Show, and I kind of had to do a double take at work. Like, what? Like, like that show? That Michael K-Show? <laughs> like, the show that got me through the pandemic because I had nothing else to do but watch him every afternoon? No, that was kind of fantastic. And seriously, folks, if you don't know the show, their show, if you know, if you're listening, you probably know our show. Go listen to them. They're awesome. But I didn't need to tell you that. And yeah, we hope you enjoy all the immaculate vibes we could bring to the table of MLB baseball, because Lord knows the hot stove ain't given us much of that. Uh, uh, okay. At least. Uh, uh, okay. Time out, time out, time out. Whoa, whoa, whoa. You said MLB baseball. It's Major League Baseball, not MLB baseball. You, okay. I'm sure I've been guilty of the exact same thing, but you got to get your grammar right, man. You... Guys, you are the last person on earth who should be telling me that. The number of times I've been editing the second half and we just kind of trail off and you say MLB baseball, like, I'll own that. I'll wear that. My mistake. You do that all the time. You can't be saying that to me. I definitely do a such thing. And I even said that when I was criticizing your grammar, but I am now going to police you for that. I say we both just get super Fs for not understanding how the English language works, and we just run from there. Ah, yes. The good old super F. If you don't understand what a super F is and you haven't seen Fairly Odd Parents, I do have a drop now in the system. 
I'm going to give you a super F. <laughs> <laughs> Something we did a lot of for our last episode, the New Year's resolutions that we did in the middle of January for MLB teams in the year of 2024. So... Go listen to that episode. That one was a lot of fun to record, but enough of the pleasantries because we do have plenty to get to, and it's 11.16 p.m. on Wednesday, February 7th. Yeah, it's February already, people. Get used to it. Uh, Go follow us on social media if you haven't already, and give us a follow and sub on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts. I just realized I said give us a follow on social media, and I never plugged what our handles are. Good job by me. We are at The Diamond Duo Podcast on Instagram, at Diamond Duo Pod on Twitter. So, without much further ado, because I don't think there's much else we have to discuss beforehand, and like you said, we do have a bit to get to. I mocked the hot stove, but considering we haven't recorded in a couple weeks, the stuff has piled up, and there's been a couple pretty big stories, including this one we're going to lead off with, Tom, here in our major headline segment. The Baltimore Orioles have officially been sold off. They are no longer principally owned, or at least... They will soon not be principally owned by the Angelos family. They have been bought out by private equity billionaires David Rubenstein of the Carlisle Group and Mike Arafetti, that is a name that ends in a vowel, I feel like I should have had a better go at that, of Aries Management Corp. They bought the Orioles from them for approximately $1.725 billion. My god, imagine having almost $2 billion to just throw around at Major League Clubs. That'd be awesome, man. It'd be great. Right? And not just that, they o- they'll only take up 40% of the ownership stake for now until incumbent owner Peter Angelos passes away. He's currently 94 years old. And interesting to note, among this group of buyers, there's, you know, a couple other smaller investors and people in those ownership roles. One of them happens to be franchise legend Cal Ripken Jr., So figure throw that out there as the, let's say, reassuring factor that this isn't just a hostile business takeover and they're going to run the Orioles like a f***ing mess, like they're going to turn them into the Angels of the East. That does not seem like the case, at least as of now, Tom. Again, their official transfer of ownership and power has not even happened yet, but I feel like just the presence of Cal Ripken Jr. has got to be something of a calming presence to the Oriole faithful, wouldn't you say? Well, let me start out, and you might not be able to hear this because Discord sucks, when I try and play stuff through the audio board, I'm going to play some sounds um, that represent, I'm pretty sure, how everybody across Major League Baseball, most notably Orioles fans, are probably feeling about the sale by the Angelos family to the new ownership. Ah, yes. Good old Final Fantasy fanfare. That works really well. And also the children yay in the background. Yes, it's... It was a great day when this happened, because now probably the second... Actually, no, the White Sox still exist, and the A's definitely exist. They're number one. (laughs) Either the second or third worst ownership group in Major League Baseball, one of the worst ownership groups in all of professional sports, is out. So, it's a great day in O's Nation. The Angelos family still, I guess, has control until uh, the day that Peter Angelos does pass away. But this group, led by David Rubenstein, or Rubenstein, whatever, will be having actual say in the team. I believe they're going to be the head honchos of the organization until that day. So, rejoice, Orioles fans. And this group, I don't know if they necessarily pushed for it, but this certainly happened after it was announced that the Orioles have been sold. They started off with a bang. 
And by a bang, Tony, they made a big bang, a big sonic boom across Major League Baseball. What did they do? Well, Tom, they took one look at their roster, saw the big starting pitching-sized hole, and said, hmm... We should probably fix that, shouldn't we? So they picked up the phone with the atrophying brewers and said, hey, I got an idea. And then 10 minutes later, they plucked Corbin Burns from them. Yes, former Cy Young winner Corbin Burns is traded to the Baltimore Orioles for a package of players, including former top 30 prospects. In fact, I think top five prospect in one case, but infielder Joey Ortiz, pitcher D.L. Hall, and the 34th overall pick in the 2024 draft. This ownership group means business. Correct me if I'm wrong, Tom. This was the day after the sale was officially made public. Like, this was absolutely set in place, at least I imagine, unless it didn't exactly work like that, to give this regime a great first impression with the fan base and with baseball as a whole. Because frankly, I'm going to be honest, Tom, the more I've had, the more time I've had to sit on this deal, the more I realize this could be a fleece and a half for Baltimore. Like, you know, it's not nothing. It's not like the Chris Archer trade where the pieces Milwaukee get back aren't going to do anything. They still have very high upside. If you don't know, Joey Ortiz, I believe, peaked at, at the top 15 of Baltimore's prospects, I believe. Really toolsy guy, could play all around the infield, big contact fielding type guy. But as you probably know, the Orioles are flush with infield talent. Ortiz was excess goods, and D.L. Hall, for the longest time, was going to be... Uh, how do I put this? Let's say this is not the greatest comparison ever, but sort of like the Barry Zito to Grayson Rodriguez's Tim Hudson, if you know what I mean. You know, like the, the funky lefty in the rotation, but it hasn't really panned out for him too well at the big league level. So off to Milwaukee, he goes for a fresh start. And it's not like you're going to be losing much in the starting pitching department when you're adding an ace like Corbin Burns. That first rounder could be a very good asset to them, but obviously we'll have to see what happens when the draft comes around. That's could be a good asset if the Brewers are smart. All that being said, it sounds like they're getting rid of some of their lottery tickets for a surefire shot at another run at the AL East crown because Tom the Brewers had basically no no leverage here at least I imagine so we've talked about it on the show that Corbin Burns has been mad at the front office for a while now it's become crystal clear that his chances of signing back with them were diminishing by the year and now at this point they figure let's jump on his trade value right now and get some former top prospects and see if we could turn them into anything so from a Brewer's standpoint, it's not bad. But for the Orioles, man, you how could you not be psyched if you're an Orioles fan right now? Because for you, you got to think like sky's the limit with Corbin Burns on your squad. Pretty much is. I mean, he's 29 years old. The only downside is he is an unrestricted free agent next season. So that is something the Orioles are going to have to address. However, if they are flush like money, like any of the new owners across baseball have been over the past, like, say, five or ten years... Resigning him will be absolutely no problem. And let's also keep this in mind. They moved the fence back about 50 feet in left field last season. So that could actually benefit Corbin Burns a little bit more. Now, of course, lefties obviously favor righties in Major League Baseball, and lefties tee off at Camden Yards. However, the ballpark alone, with the left field pretty much being 370 feet back, will certainly help Corbin Burns keep his ERA lower in a much, much more difficult division that is hitter-friendly simply because it's the AL East and you have to go against the likes of the New York Yankees and their two big bats in Aaron Judge and Juan Soto. You have to go through the Toronto Blue Jays who hit for contact. They're overrated. I know I had to get the shot in there somehow, but <laughs> they hit the ball pretty damn well. You've also got the Tampa Bay Rays who are always sneaky good and you've got the Boston Red Sox. 
That's about it. All I can really say about them is they're getting a Netflix series about them, but they're going to be so bad this year, so that's going to be hilarious to watch, if I ever choose to watch it. The point is, Corbin Burns should be fine in Camden Yards. Uh, It also gives the Baltimore Orioles their marquee move of the offseason, because previously all they really did was acquire Craig Kimbrell. They desperately needed starting pitching. All they did was go out and trade for the best arm on the trade market this offseason. And quite frankly... We didn't even know if he was technically on the trade market to begin with. But like you mentioned, his frustrations with the Milwaukee Brewers date back a while. If you remember a while ago, when they were in their arbitration hearings with the Milwaukee Brewers, they were off by like maybe, say, $200,000. That's just a figure, but they're relatively close. The Brewers would not back down, and I believe in the meetings they kind of outlined the negative reasons as to why they're going for that price. And Corbin Burns made some comments that's like, yeah, that's not something I'm going to forget. And surely enough, He didn't forget it. The Brewers, again, obviously being bargain bin hunters, of course, as they always are, probably didn't want to pay him a boatload of money because he's about to be 30 years old and he's going to probably demand an eight to nine year contract, possibly along the lines of a Garrett Cole, probably a little bit less. But if he has a Cy Young worthy season this year, I can see him getting a Garrett Cole-esque contract next year. So all around, though, for Baltimore, absolutely fantastic move uh, getting Corbin Burns. Congratulations on that. And what they really gave up, yeah, they give up some good prospects. They're giving up the 34th overall pick. But D.L. Hall, I mean, he was a top prospect in their system for a while. Like Tony said, I'll get by him really quickly. This year, he pitched in the big leagues in 18 games. He had a 3-2-6 ERA, 19 innings, 23 Ks, only five walks. So that's really good. But his minor league numbers weren't really anything to snuff at, even though he's been a top 100 prospect for the past five years. I don't really know how much they're losing here. Milwaukee is good at developing pitching, so they'll find a way to make DL Hall work. But in my opinion, this is a very big win for Baltimore, a big loss for Milwaukee just because you're giving up Corbin Burns and the chance to even try and make amends and resign him because you're losing one of the best commodities in Major League Baseball by trading him. Shame on you for being cheap. Honestly, the biggest like note of praise I can give the Orioles for that is as a Yankees fan, I am crapping my pants looking at this deal. This is exactly what yeah. I did not want the Orioles to do because now not only do I think I already thought they could go back like back to back ALEs titles, man. If the rest of the division does not catch up with them, at least with their hitting, they were probably going to go back there now that they've got a legit two headed monster in Burns and John Means, plus guys like Kyle Bradish behind them. The Orioles look good and they already have a top bullpen in baseball. I don't know. Some of those hitters could avoid sophomore slumps and all that jazz. Expect them to do very, very similar things to what they did this year. Well, Tony, forget the short term for a second. What about the long term? Because now they can actually pay their superstars that they've got in Gunnar Henderson, what they might have in Jackson Holiday, what they've got in Adley Rutschman, because the Angelos family didn't sound like they really wanted to pay anybody because they were cheap as hell. Yeah. Like borderline John Fisher levels of cheap. Now, they've got the investment that they could be really, really good for a really, really long time, and that scares the ever-living piss out of me as a Yankee fan. That's honestly, like, why as a a fan of the game of baseball, not a game of the fan of baseball, that's why I love the Angelo sale so much, because if you remember, we talked about it during the season, they straight up said, we don't know if we're going to be able to afford our superstars, which of course you can, it's just a matter of you don't want to. And moreover, the fact that they're gone leads me to believe that this new group is going to swoop in and do just that. They're going to keep guys like Rutschman and Henderson and Jackson Holiday in town long term 
to terrorize the AL East for well over a decade, which is making me feel really shitty as a Yankee fan for laughing at them in 2018 for paying Chris Davis all that money to strike out. But still, unbiased look, this should be the beginning of a great age for them. I'm talking like 1960s, 1970s, prime Orioles. This should, they should be good for a while. I never thought I'd be saying that about them this soon, but hey, props to the front office for getting it done. Now, moving right along from the Orioles, we actually got a couple trades and moves from, leftover from last episode, which if you remember- oh, yeah. Editor Tony popped in and said, hey guys, uh, we talked about four moves for way too long in this episode where we were just going to talk about the resolutions, so we took them out and we're going to put them in next episode. Uh, yeah, that plans out the window because, number one, <laughs> I don't feel like editing a 40-minute excerpt of us talking about four deals plus my half of this episode. I love mm. the show, but I also like sleeping. Uh, number two... <laughs> None of the deals are big enough to warrant that big of a talk, so we're just going to go through them really quick now, and then we're going to go on the more topical ones that have happened more recently. I'm just going to rattle them off for real quick, Tom. We'll circle back if you want. The Chicago Cubs made a move. They signed Japanese lefty Shota Imananga uh, out of Japan for four years, $53 million. They were also involved in a trade with the LA Dodgers that sent the Dodgers number two prospect, MLB number 44 prospect, Michael Bush, to the south side. Uh, nope, that's the White Sox, idiot, uh, to the north <laughs> side. Yeah, great job, dumbass. <laughs> How do, how do you f*** that up? Like, you've got a really good franchise in the Cubs, and you've got piss-poor poverty in the White Sox down south. They're, they're literally the definition of 50 feet of crap from Moneyball. I, I get that. It was thinking, I was thinking of a funny name for Chicago, and the Windy City didn't show up. I don't know. Sue me. It, 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 honestly... Yeah, whatever. I had a zingy comeback, but I but I lost it. Just like the just like the White Sox chance for contention. Had it, then you lost it. <laughs> yeah, good job. Either way, the Cubs got Michael Bush. They also got reliever Yancy Almonte in exchange for lefty Jackson Ferris, their number eight prospect, and outfielder Zahir Hope. Uh, the Giants made a move. I don't know if I'd call it a good move. They signed Jordan Hicks for four years and $44 million, and they intend for him to be a full-time starter because somebody didn't learn from St. Louis's mistakes. And lastly, but may or may or may not be most notably, this one's still, I still don't know how to feel about this one, Marcus oh, Stroman is a New York Yankee. Oh, God. The one, I'm going to be honest, one of the few parts of that rambling we had, I'm sad as getting lost to the wind, is my tirade about Stroman. I almost want to plug it in here, but I don't feel like digging for it and censoring it because it was pretty, it was pretty explicit. Uh, nevertheless, the deal, uh, two years, 37 million with a conditional option for the third year. Still don't know how I feel about that. If he behaves himself, he should be fine. But if he doesn't, then it's going to be the Mets all over again. Can't wait for him to call out the fan base on Twitter again. Oh my god. But either way, those are the four moves. Could you imagine we spent 40 minutes on those stuff? Yeah, I can't believe we actually did that in the first place, let alone even trying to attempt to do that now on four moves that, no offense, pale in complete comparison to what we've got immediately after these four moves. But I will chime in really quickly because I did talk for 40 minutes about them at one point in time. I might as well give them at least two minutes at this point in time. Shota Imananga. Not the pitcher I thought the Cubs would sign this offseason. I was all aboard on the hype train of Yoshinobu Yamamoto to the Chicago Cubs, or even a bigger move to the Chicago Cubs, along the ilks of maybe $150 million plus, but getting a fairly decent left-hander for their starting rotation that they should definitely look to add to, they most certainly did that. 
So completely fine with that move. Although I believe he has an injury history, I believe at one point. I think we talked about that, Tony, right? Did he have like Tommy John at one point? Or was it shoulder surgery maybe? I don't know. I think it was the shoulder. I don't think it was Tommy John. The only red flag I remember bringing up was he was very home run happy, very fly ball Mm. heavy. And in Wrigley Field, I don't know how that's going to fly. Pun intended, of course. Michael Bush in the Jackson Ferris deal. I had stuff to say about it, at least for five minutes at one point in time. I'm indifferent to it now. So I'm going to move on to Jordan Hicks (laughs) to the San Francisco Giants. All I'm going to say is he started eight games previously throughout his career. Now, I don't know if this is all eight games necessarily, but it's some great stuff, people. This is through seven starts, but it doesn't get much better in the eighth, so it really doesn't matter. They want to make him a starting pitcher when, one, you have his injury history, but two, it never worked out in the past. He has a 584 ERA through the seven starts I'm looking at, and I can guarantee you the eighth start wasn't much better. What did he do in that? You know, it doesn't matter because his ERA probably would have skyrocketed (laughs) anyway. 24 strikeouts to 18 walks. He gave up 16 earned runs across 24 and two-thirds innings. By the way, as I mentioned, this is through seven starts and he only lasted 24 and two-thirds innings. Maybe it was a bullpen day. I really don't know. At one point, he went five innings, so I'd like to think they actually tried him as a starter and then realized, oh, shit. That's a really, really bad idea. Let's abandon this immediately. So that is going to completely spiral out of control for them. Luckily, though, San Francisco is a pitcher-friendly ballpark, so maybe it'll work out in their favor. As for Marcus Stroman to the Yankees, well, funny funny enough, we talk about very bad ERAs in certain um, aspects of the game. Marcus Stroman's Yankee Stadium ERA, I believe, is in the sixes throughout his, like, I don't know how many starts he's had in his career. I know he was with Toronto for a while and logged a few starts in Yankee Stadium. It didn't end well. I can tell you that much right now. Now, the Yankees did need to add to this rotation, so at least Brian Cashman made a little bit of an effort. But in reality, it was not the best move. Because Yankee fans hate Marcus Stroman. Marcus Stroman hates a lot of Yankee fans. He might not be able to tell that anymore because he's probably blocked half of them on Twitter, but... It's not a very good relationship, so he's going to have a lot of amends to work on if he wants to uh, work in pinstripes. That's all I'm going to leave it at. I probably went on an explicit-filled rant in our 40-minute session. I'm not going to do it here. Instead, I'm going to move on to our next topic, which is we hate the Astros. Tony put the F word in front of hate, uh, but I am not going to repeat it here. Uh, because I think I've turned a leaf with my cursing on this show. Uh, not really. I'm going to find a way to drop probably 50 F-bombs in this segment alone. But, bull. That, <laughs> yeah, you know what? You know what? I'm going to drop one right here. I was f***ing right about Josh Hader to the Astros, baby. Let's f***ing get it. Give myself a round of applause. You know what? I, I can give myself a round of applause, but you know what? I can do me one better. I can play the drop, or I can actually give myself a round of applause. Ah. I'm letting it soak in. I'm that arrogant, Tony. I was right about one... Pr- Actually, no, two predictions this offseason. You see, I don't know why you're thumping your chest so much for manifesting the Astros getting better. Why are you yeah. proud of this? I'm not proud of that. This is I'm your proud fault. That I, I, I'm not proud of that at all. In fact, I'm quite terrified of that. <laughs> I'm happy for the fact that I actually got a prediction right and that I just said it 
my reasoning at the time, and this is pretty much, I think, Houston's reasoning too, is it's just a move they can make. They already have a great bullpen, but they can add to it because they just want to vilify themselves even more. And what's a better way to do that than to get the best reliever, also the most expensive reliever, on the free agency market this offseason? And they went and did that. I nailed that prediction 100%, but I'll let you keep speaking. But yeah, I'm very disappointed. That's the one that came true. I did manifest that. I apologize. Uh, you can hate me all you want for it, but I, I got something right. I'm going to gloat a little bit. The shitty part is, I'm pretty sure in that episode, I agree. I didn't agree with you. I said he was going to the Rangers because I thought they needed a closer more than the Astros. I said, like, that sounds like, that sounds true. That sounds like something that would actually happen. And I hate that it's something that actually happened. Oh my God, to cater to the thing you said earlier about most expensive reliever, that's actually true. He was signed to a five-year, $95 million deal, which is the largest deal ever given to, re to a reliever in present-day value. Technically, Edwin Diaz's $102 million contract is worth more, but a portion of that is deferred. I don't I don't know how much of it is deferred, but some of it is enough to bring it under 95. So Hader is going to be the most expensive reliever in baseball while he is playing. And I'm going to be honest, Tom, the more I look at Ryan Presley's uh, baseball reference page, you know, their previous closer, the more under the more understanding I am of the move, because over the past couple seasons, he's been on a bit of a decline. Last year, he was fine. If you're, if you're just looking at raw saves, he's been fine. If anything, he's been getting better, 33 and 31 the past two years. But his ERA has gone up ever since 2021. Uh, his whip has gone up. The homers have gone up. Uh, particularly, I think, in the playoffs last year, he wasn't the best. So his contract expires after next year anyway. Might as well lock up his replacement while he's available. So if I'm an Astros fan, I'm over the moon happy about this. If I'm a fan of any of the other 29 teams in baseball, I'm foaming at the teeth. Because they managed to get him. I'm, ma I'm mad at that. But I'm mad at it because I think it's smart. <laughs> That's where I'm at right now. And what's more than that, as if the Astros couldn't give me more reason for me to hate them, the face of their franchise is not f***ing going anywhere. And that is Jose Altuve, every New Yorker's favorite second baseman ever is going to be an Astro for life. They extended him for five years, $125 million. He's on the older side. By the end of the deal, he's going to be pushing 40 But I'm going to be honest, man, that's just a smart deal. The guy's been the backbone of your organization for as long as he's been in the league. He's seen some lean years. He's seen both World Series titles. Or sorry, the only World Series title. There you go. And moreover, you know, if you're in Houston, he's a fan favorite. He's always so good with the media, with the community. I'm I'm shedding the Yankee label for this. He's a really good guy. Mm -hmm. And if there's anyone on that roster who deserves an extension like that, bar none, it's Altuve. Like, he's earned his stripes. I mean, hell, he earned his own f***ing day. I think it, this was today, Tom. What What's today? Jose Altuve day now? Yep, 2-7. The Houston mayor announced that. Yeah, the mayor of Houston just wants to, wants to rub the his team successes and everyone else's face that much more he's still playing and they announced jose altuve day you know they did that for willie mays like last week too and he hasn't played since the cold war yeah no altuve they're like nah f it just make it just make today his day now he's already great honestly with his accomplishments it's hard to blame them i'd go through them but you already know them he's great as a yankees fan i hate him but as an objective fan of the game of baseball i can't dislike this move that's good for them as an objective fan of the sport of baseball, I have more to say on this when we get to the Carlos Beltran part of the program later on in the episode, because it, part of that discussion hmm. 
will extend to Jose Altuve and maybe a few other Houston Astros. You already know who I'm probably talking about. Piggybacking on what you said about Josh Hader. By the way, I came up with a fantastic catchphrase for the Houston Astros this year involving Josh Hader. Are you ready for it? If it's haters going to hate, don't even bother. <laughs> At any rate, so Edwin Diaz and his deferments. <laughs> um... I will admit that's pretty good. If they're going to fully take on their, like, villain persona, which they have, that's not bad. <laughs> I, I, yeah, it, it's not original, but I'm going to pitch it to the Astros right now. Make that your hashtag for the year. And honestly, I'll be okay with that. Maybe I'll manifest that, too, with the Houston Astros. But at any rate, Edwin Diaz's deferments. Um, 10 years, $26.5 million will be his deferments from the year 2033 through 2042. He's going to be paid $2.65 million throughout the course of those 10 years. So those are the deferments in the Diaz deal and why Haters deal is technically the largest deal ever given to a reliever in that present day value. Um, I already spoke my piece and I gloated enough about Josh Hader. So yeah, they're going to have the best bullpen in baseball. I think that kind of goes without saying at this point. So that sucks. Uh, but Jose Altuve, yeah, I'm, I mean, what can I say that Tony hasn't already said? It's a great deal. He's a fantastic player. He should be a Hall of Famer by the terms of his numbers and his accomplishments, minus that one year in 2017. I mean, look, man. They're paying him like $30 million a year. I know it goes down, I think, to like 25 at one point. It might even dip even more toward the end of that contract. But it's an all-around solid deal for the Astros. They're going to get a lot of value out of him until the very end. Maybe it'll backfire and it'll like shoot the this deal will shoot itself in Houston's face at some point. But I really don't see that happening. Because as long as the Houston Astros, as long as they're competitive for like three more years, which they should be because they have enough players to keep that window wide open, they're going to get their money's worth out of the Jose Altuve deal. Just his presence in the locker room and in the Houston Astros clubhouse, well, same thing. It's going to be worth $30 million (laughs) enough because like Tony said, he's the icon down there. He's the face of their franchise. He's their Derek Jeter because they can't stop f***ing comparing the two of them on Twitter. I, yeah, I saw another comparison about that on Twitter today, and Yankee fans were quick Lovely. to shut that one down. So, absolutely fantastic. Have your Derek Jeter, have your f***ing guy who shouldn't be a Hall of Famer because they cheated, but I've probably said that way too many times on this podcast. Sorry, Houston Astros fans. So yeah, we hate the Astros because they just made themselves even better. Speaking of making yourselves even better, or rather just locking up stars for the long term, how about the Kansas City Royals showing a pair? And they're actually going to lock up their superstar shortstop, Bobby Witt Jr., for the next 11 years at $288.7 million. I believe there's incentives to take this over to $300 million, Tony. I could be completely wrong about that. That sounds right. But holy crap, the Royals are going to be paying a lot of money to a guy who should certainly be worth the price of admission. I mean, just based off his first two seasons, you see steady improvement in basically every facet of his game. You know, he had a sub-300 on-base percentage in his rookie year, took that over 300 this year. He hit 20 homers his rookie year. Second year, he hit 30, stealing more bases, albeit he's being caught more. But he found that power stroke. He's being more patient at the plate. He's not striking out as much. 
We can hope if this trend continues, he'll get even better next year, and God willing, the Royals actually get some help around him, because did you look at that lineup last year? It read like a who's who of who's going to be playing for the Long Island Ducks in three years. I don't have a ton of faith in that lineup completely. I mean, obviously, there's the golden god himself, Vinny Pasquantino. That man's contributions to baseball are titanic, and he's barely even played a full season. Don't you oh god me? He's going to win an MVP. You keep saying that. You keep predicting that. I'm going to laugh when that inevitably never happens. And when it does, you're wearing a Vinny jersey at a Yankees stadium. I cannot wait for that day. That's fine with me. I will do that because it's never going to happen. (laughs) All right, all right, we'll see what happens when the Royals are competitive in, like, four years, and Vinny and Bobby Witter uh, do do get the MVP. Do you want to make a bet right now about Vinny Pasquantino? (laughs) What, whether or not he'll win an MVP? Yes. He's still young. Okay, if he wins an MVP, I have to get a Royal jersey of Vinny Pasquantino, and I will wear it in Yankee Stadium. If he never wins an MVP, you have to shave your head bald. What the whoa 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 no 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 we we can do any type of deal the second you start talking about the like the an Italian man's hair that's baldness runs in my family man I'm keeping this shit as long as I can mm how much are you gonna really believe in your Italian brethren this is Vinny Pasquantino the guy mm. who you ranked as the number one first baseman in all of baseball over even your buddy your pal down in Atlanta Matt Olson. I, <laughs> How much do you really believe in Pat, Vinny Pasquantino? I think hey, it should cost you your hair. First of all, there was a joke tier list. Of course, Freddie Freeman's the best first baseman in baseball, but nevertheless, also, how long are we going to track this? Pasquantino's only 25. Are we going to be like, are we going to be in our 40s? Like, hey, guess what? Pay up. Like, he won an MVP. You got to get the jersey or he didn't. I mean, we could do barber. that. We can make we can make it like a five year term. It depends what you want to do, as long as the terms stay the same. Let's let's let me sit on this. That's mm-hmm. and I, I want to think of what you're going to sit on it, and then you're never going to bring it up again. So that way, you don't have to shave your head. <laughs> well, no, I'm not going to shave my head for a baseball bet. That's not. I'm not a betting man. But this is also Vinny Pasquantino, God's gift to baseball. Exactly. And you should bet mightily if you consider him God's gift to baseball. Let's let's circle back to this, Paisan. I want to see him play a full season first. What were we even talking about? God damn- oh, yeah, Bobby Wood Jr. Wait. Yeah. <laughs> I forgot about uh, that's that part. A lot this more- isn't a Vinny. Yeah, it, it, it's a lot more important than our bet that we're never going to fulfill. I Exactly. We'll, we'll talk more about Vinny Pasquantino and the how after they scale because we got to talk about the Royals. Either way. Hopefully they get more help around Bobby Witt Jr. They actually reflushed the pitching staff quite a bit this offseason. We've talked about that, especially with the emergence of, uh, what's his name, Cole Reagans uh, in that trade from the Rangers last year. So hopefully the Royals will take that step forward this year, but I've seen them the past eight seasons. I'm not stupid. That's why it's an 11-year contract, man. They're not going to be good next year or the year after that. This is squarely for a late 2020s, early 2030s push when they actually learn how to develop prospects or pay for someone else's. But all in all, man, I like the deal. It honestly reminds me of Julio Rodriguez's deal. You can't really look at one without the other at this rate. They both came up around the same time. They both have very similar tools. They just play very different positions. And if he turns out to be what Kansas City believes that he is, I think it's a steal. Get him at a nice market value now when his skills are going to be worth a lot more down the line. Solid pickup. Just please, for the love of God, build the team around him. And Vinny, come on. Our boys need some help. Uh, Yeah, whatever. 
Um, the things that concern <laughs> me about uh, Bobby Wood Jr. are two things currently at the moment. One, his slash line. This year, it raised exponentially. Last year, his slash line was 254, 294, and 428 for an OPS plus of 102. This year, his offensive categories, he played in eight more games. He had about 60 some odd more at-bats, and all of his numbers rose. Except his strikeouts, that actually went down by 14 from 135 to 124, or 121 rather. His slash line was 276, 319, 495, and an OPS plus of 120. So that's great. That batting average, crisp, supreme. That is perfectly fine, especially for a shortstop. Especially if it's a shortstop that's going to steal 50 bases and hit 30 home runs. That OBP, though, does concern me quite a bit. Because we've seen guys who kind of have their OBPs tail off. And if your peak is going to be right now, it's only been two years. But say he hovers around that 319 mark for a long while. At what point does he start chasing like a Javi Baez? What point does that contract become moot? Because he just gets into his own head or he's trying to chase like home runs specifically. He's not trying to do everything across all facets of the game. He's not that five-tool player anymore. Because again, we've seen players who've started really quick in their careers. But then over time, injuries or just the natural process of aging have slowed them down exponentially to where they don't steal a lot of bases anymore. Look at Mike Trout. That's a more taxing position because he plays in the outfield. But he used to have the ability to steal like 40 or 50 stolen bases a year, and now he can't even steal one. It'd be lucky if he did that. So that concerns me. Now, again, I'm comparing him to Mike Trout in that regard. So obviously, he's that, that's a very good comparison if that's who we're going for. That's a future Hall of Famer right there. But still, that OBP concerns me. However, his numbers only got better. He walked... He had 10 more walks this year, and he lowered his strikeout number. He's going to be more than fine. Number two is his defense, because holy sh**, it is really, really bad. That's Defensive right. war, last year he had minus 1.6. Not good. Uh, this year he had 0.3, not in the negatives, in the positives, so that's good. But if you look at like his defensive run saved, uh, like that type of standard fielding that you can look up on baseball reference, it's all in the negative. It is not good. Now, that being said, I don't watch Bobby Witt Jr. on a recurring basis to know if his defense is just analytically bad or if it's fundamentally bad. Because if it's fundamentally bad and you're playing shortstop for the majority of your career, that's going to bite the team in the ass at some point. It's not now because the team sucks and you can overlook very, very bad defense, but it could come back to bite him. And that those are the two things that really concern me. Is Or actually three things. Is one, how long is the speed going to last? Two, is his OBP going to hover around this 319? Because that's not something I necessarily want to attach myself to for 11 years at $288 million. And number three is some scattered defense, let's say. I'll give you the defense. He's not been that great so far since he came up, but that's also a Royals thing. Like, the Royals and coaching go together like ice cream and kerosene. So, I'm obviously he needs to improve that himself, but it's not like he's got a great support system around him. The speed, I mean, every player loses their speed after a while, but I think Bobby, Bobby's what, like 22? Something like that. He's definitely younger than us. I imagine, especially at shortstop, he'll keep that. 23? Okay. I imagine he'll keep that speed at least for a bit. I imagine till 
around the time he gets over the hill of 30, maybe he'll start slowing down. But for a shortstop especially, he's going to need to be quick to make those plays. And I'll be honest, I just got to disagree with you on the offense. I think a lot of his numbers this year showed a lot of positive regression, so to speak. He was getting unlucky a bit, excuse me, in his rookie year, I remember. Him and Julio actually had that distinction. And moreover, this year, I feel like his OBP can only serve to go up. Uh, Granted, obviously, Mm. it could crater again, in which case then I'd be worried. But He's shown nothing but discipline at the major league level so far when it comes to improving himself. I really hope he could continue that. There's nothing, there's no real reason for me to believe he can't. You know, it's a similar vein to Julio Rodriguez. Julio's got a better OBP, but, you know, many of the problems that perpetuated Bobby also perpetuated Julio at first. And Julio's a bona fide superstar now. Witt, I think, is one more solid season away from being in that same conversation. Hell, he just went 30-30. One of two shortstops last year to do that. I don't think you can, like, say it's completely unjustified after doing something like that at 23 years old. That's impressive as hell. I maybe I'm maybe I'm high on Bobby Wood Jr. Maybe I'm just not like seeing the faults in this, but I'm I, I really like this deal for Kansas City. Well, listen, it gives them that franchise icon that they obviously should be building around. For, again, 11 years to come, that gives them a window, that gives them a deadline that tells them, all right, we got to get our shit together in this amount of time. Or they can be the Los Angeles Angels and not give a shit about giving out a big contract and then not caring about winning for who knows how long. Or the Mariners. Well, that too. I'm not trying to, I'm not trying to be a Debbie Downer in this. I'm just trying to be critical and kind of see through where this contract can fall through. I think Bobby Wood Jr. is a fantastic player and will be a face of baseball if he's not recognized one already. He will be in about two, maybe two and a half seasons. He'll he'll probably be... Wow, he wasn't an all-star last year. That's kind of disgraceful. He'll be starting an all-star game, I feel like, at some point in the near future. Like, that's the type of guy Bobby Wood Jr. is. I'm just trying to kind of give this throttling back, almost, of... Again, what could go wrong? I don't know why I need to justify my stance. The Royals have had a great offseason. They're going to be getting a new stadium. They're on the up and up. That being said, I don't know how much more games I'm going to project them to win next year because this is still the Royals after all, and they have a long way to go before they can even think about competing. But <laughs> there's some there, there's definitely more positives than negatives, but those are just the things that stand out to me. Overall, the Royals hit a home run with this. You know what I just thought would be so funny? I'm sorry, this is just one last tangent and then I'll move on. Could you imagine if they finish with more wins than the White Sox next year? Oh my god, that would be hilarious. Because, dude, they they were close last year. The White Sox had 61, the Royals had 56. One decent swing from the Royals pitching staff and they're basically there. You know what? I'm going to go on the note and I'm going to say that's going to happen this year. I honestly believe it. Do I think they're going to have this, like huge leap that we projected the Tigers to have two years ago with their offseason acquisitions? Absolutely not. That was beyond <laughs> ridiculous of us to think they, they could be a, a playoff team or win 85 games. That was stupid. I think they can easily win more games than the White Sox this year, and I don't even think that's much of a hot take, to be completely honest, because we're talking about two bars that are set extremely low. I mean, this is like, we're talking like 100 loss territory. I'm honestly on paper they're very similar teams. They each have one superstar with an injury-prone power colleague in the lineup. Their pitching staffs are built around one really good guy and a lot of question marks, and their bullpens are hot trash. So honestly, I think it's going to be a competition as to who is going to suck less, and that's going to be really interesting to see throughout the year because a realistic argument could be made that it could be the White Sox, or sorry, the Royals that suck less. But that's a topic for another day.
that all being said, let's actually move on, but stay in the AL Central. The next few of these we're going to rattle through because, truth be told, we don't have a lot to say about some of these. We'll stop and, you know, reflect if we really need to, but for the most part, don't want this one to run too long. Just want to get the news out to you. So I'm going to kick this off by saying another prospect, actually just, well, Bobby Wood Jr. is not a prospect, but another young gun just got paid recently by an AL Central team, and this time it was the Tigers. They inked prospect Bolt Keith to a six-year, $28.6 million contract. And that value, by the way, could go up to $82 million if all of his club options and performance incentives are met. Now, I don't know if the Tigers went to the Chicago White Sox school of signing prospects to lucrative deals before they even play a game, but spoiler alert, that didn't go too well for them. I don't know much about Cole Keith. I'm just going to throw that straight out there. I like to think I know a lot about MLB prospects, but Cole Keith has just kind of fallen under my radar. He's kind of, you know, just come onto the scene. But from what I see, really good toolsy hitter. He's a left-handed bat, and he's an infielder, which honestly the Tigers could really, really use with that mess of a contract at shortstop. So good for him. Hopefully he pans out. And if not, that new GM is going to smell an awful lot like Al Avila. Uh, speaking of shifty GM moves, let's talk about the Mariners. They made a trade that I actually don't hate. It's not great, but I don't hate it. They acquired Jorge Polanco from the Twins in exchange for Anthony DiSclafani, Justin Topa, Gabriel Gonzalez, their number three ranked outfield prospect, and Darren Bowden, or Bowden, excuse me, I believe he's a right-handed pitcher. Just really brief, I love this deal for Minnesota. Jorge Polanco is excess goods with the emergence of Edward Julian, and they managed to capitalize on an injury-prone infielder with some nice capital. Justin Topa, in particular, underrated part of the deal, 150 ERA-plus reliever last year. Solid, solid pickup, plus the outfield prospect in Gonzalez. The Twins definitely need some depth in their system in that uh, respect. Solid deal for them, and the upside for Seattle is honestly pretty good. If Polanco could stay healthy, he's one of the most consistent second basemen in the game. So, solid deal for both sides, but if Polanco gets hurt, it's going to be, you know, Sean Figgins 2.0, and we get to laugh at them again. Let's keep going. We've got, actually, we're going to stay with the Twins, because they also signed another infielder, Carlos Santana, for one year, $5.25 million, some nice insurance at first base. It's really the only position they needed the depth at, so I like that. The Blue Jays signed Yadiel Rodriguez. He was a Cuban pitcher who went over to Tom, correct me if I'm wrong, was it the NPB or the KBO that he was pitching in? Do you remember? For Yariel Rodriguez? Yeah, I believe he was pitching one of the one of the Asian leagues, no? How the hell would I know that? <laughs> no offense. Oh, I don't know. How the hell would I know <laughs> my trivia on Yariel Rodriguez? Time out, one second. I don't know. I thought you here. Here, I got it. Don't worry. No, it was Japan. <laughs> it was Japan, okay. I just know he. I knew he was one of the most highly coveted relief pitchers out there. Blue Jays got him. Maybe he'll lead that bullpen to some sense of stability. Maybe not. And Toronto also landed. This will be the last one I say. And then before I throw it off to Tom, Toronto is getting some lineup depth with Justin Turner. Got him for one year, thirteen mil, with one point five million in performance incentives. Maybe this is the year Father Time catches him. Maybe not. Oh yay! It's my <laughs> turn to talk. Let's do that. Uh, let's rattle through five moves here quickly. The Mets bring back Adamata Vino to a one-year $4.5 million deal. Now, Tony threw to me about Yariel Rodriguez, and I did have Adamata Vino stats pulled up on my page. 
And then I had to think about who Yariel Rodriguez was for a hot sec. So I lost his page on baseball reference. However, I just pulled it back up and quite surprising. Wow, he's actually got good stats for the Mets. I'm very, very shocked at that. Over the course of his past two seasons in New York, he has a 262 combined ERA. Last year alone, a 321 ERA in 66 games. He got 12 saves, um, 62 Ks, 29 walks, 132 ERA plus. Wow. Yeah, I thought his career would kind of tank off after that kind of abysmal 2020 season with the New York Yankees and a not-so-great season with the Boston Red Sox following up. But Adam Alvino has actually been kind of scary good. Probably also scary to Mets fans sometimes, too, because it's the Mets and their bullpen. <laughs> oh, boy, we were making fun of the Royals' bullpen, but, I mean, holy <laughs> you want to talk about lighting <laughs> stuff up with kerosene, I mean, the Mets take it to a whole nother level. But Adam Alvino has been one of their bright spots. And it's a one-year deal. They're bringing him back for cheap. Why not? Hector Neris going to the Chicago Cubs. This one, I thought this would be a Yankees move because the rumors for Hector Neris to the Yankees for at least two weeks were very, very strong. And I was about to go on a rant here whenever we talked about him and be like, the Yankees made a fantastic move, getting a guy with a 171 ERA last year, a 246 ERA plus, a strikeout machine, a guy that can honestly be extremely effective as a setup man for them, and he signs with the Chicago Cubs. Probably because the Yankees were cheap, or for whatever other stupid reason. Maybe he likes Chicago better. I'm very, very disappointed he didn't sign with the Yankees. For Chicago, I'm jealous of the deal. So good on you guys. Hey, remember about five minutes ago when I said the Royals offseason was really good? This is not one of the moves that I thought was really good. Adam Frazier, one year, $4.5 million guaranteed. With an $8.5 million mutual option for 2025, who the hell conceptualized that for a guy with Adam Frazier's capabilities? And no offense, I like the former one-time <laughs> All-Star, but he had 13 home runs last year? Oh, damn. Okay, he did better last year than I gave him credit for, but still, hitting 240 with a 300 on the dot OBP doesn't necessarily scream, give him an 8.5 mutual option for 2025. 4.5 million over a year? Sure. All they'll probably do is hold on to him if he has a good first half. They're going to trade him for some slapdick prospects that we're never going to see again, and they're going to get their money's worth out of Adam Frazier. That's the type of deal teams in a bad position do. That's one of them. Next up is Jock Peterson. Big cock Jock. One year, $12.5 million guaranteed with the Arizona Diamondbacks. That is a perfect move for them. Getting that power hitter that can kind of fulfill that corner outfielder DH spot. There's also a $14 million mutual option for 2025. I like that move. Very familiar with the NL West. He's pretty much been there his whole life. He spent the past like one or two years with San Francisco. He was a little injury prone here and there, but he provided a nice pop for the Giants when he was healthy. I like that move. And Reese Hoskins with the Brewers, two years, $34 million guaranteed, a $4 million opt-out after year one, $18 million mutual option for 2026. This move screams Brewers all over it. Rebound candidate for a lot of money, $17 million a year pretty much for the Brewers. That's a lot. But for a player that can be the caliber of Reese Hoskins, that could turn out to be very good. Now, will he be the Reese Hoskins we saw in Philly pre-injury? No. This is Milwaukee we're talking about. This is where offense goes to die. He's going to need to do a lot 
to get back to his old form. Also, we don't know if he can regain his old form because he spent the last season out for the season due to injury. However, he doesn't have to do a whole lot to be atop of the Milwaukee Brewers pecking order in terms of hitters. So Reese Hoskins does have that going for him. So that had Brewers written all over it. That's all I'm going to say. None of us predicted him to go to the Brewers, unfortunately. I think I said the Cubs, but um, yeah, that move had Brewers written all over for it. That was the rumors for a while. Reese Hoskins going to Milwaukee, fair all around. It's funny, when we actually did that free agency thing, I thought it had Padres written all over it because I did not think he'd get a contract this lucrative. Padres are looking to save money and they needed a first baseman. But truth be told, the Brewers definitely make sense if he could be that cleanup bat, you know, to hit after William Contreras and Christian Yelich. That's all he needs to do. He has a nice 20 homer season. I think the Brewers take that as a success. Yeah, you know, maybe a slight overpay. Yeah, maybe a slight overpay because $17 million That's a year. True. I mean, yeah, but let's look at who is really in free agency. Yeah, I guess you kind of can't get that money because there wasn't many options. That's true. I'll give you that. I wouldn't have paid that much for Christian. I almost said Christian Yelich for Reese Hoskins. But end of the day, if he plays up to his ceiling, it'll look like a steal. So we'll have to wait and see. The Brewers are probably baseball's biggest question mark going into next year. But we'll talk more about them when we get into preseason predictions. I'm going to keep it rolling and actually finish it off and jump to the Cardinals. They are getting a nice little sentimental reunion with Yankees legend, renowned New York Yankee, Matt Carpenter. He's coming back to the Cardinals for one year at league minimum. Got to imagine this is a swan song in the league. If it is, boy howdy, this is going to be a rough trio of years for the Cardinals. They lose Albert one year, then Wayno. Albert and Yachty, then Wayno, then Matt Carpenter. That's got to be rough. That is some, you know, Yankees lose Jeter and Moe back-to-back years type of rough. Uh, Speaking of rough goodbyes potentially coming soon, the Dodgers have officially done the least surprising thing that they do every single offseason, and that's re-sign Clayton Kershaw to a one-year deal. Oh, but dude, this one, this is a special deal. This one has a player option. not. They may not even have to sign him next year. (laughs) He might just go up and say, hey, I want this money that I may or may not deserve, and the Dodgers will say, cool. Brand consistency and recognition, we love that. Uh, in all actuality, though, Kershaw obviously deserves such luxuries with the Dodgers. He's their best pitcher in team history. Only problem, you remember, he's hurt and not going to be ready till midseason. The time we're recording this, the financials have not been revealed, but I can't imagine it's that that much. Probably a bit, you know, you know, the Kershaw tax, but it's probably not going to be for all that much. He's only going to be pitching half the year, and then the playoffs when they eventually make it and get bounced immediately because he pitched in them. <laughs> I-, I loved Kershaw. I love Kershaw, but watching him against the Diamondbacks was like watching the end of Old Yeller. Man, just depressing. Oh man, that was sad. Let's make it. Let's make it less sad. Let's make it funny. Let's go to the Padres. Who, Tom? I think I bet I put this in the group chat. I'm imagining a press conference where AJ Preller's meeting with the media about the offseason, and the people ask him after the Soto trade, how many uh, 2023 Yankees pitchers would you like on your roster? And AJ Preller looks him dead in the eye, goes up to the mic and says, yes. Moments later, he inks Wandy Peralta <laughs> to a three-year deal, so excuse me, a four-year deal worth $16.5 million, and this deal curiously features three opt-outs? <laughs> Like, 
I I got to imagine Wandy did that or his agent. Like he wanted as many escape hatches as possible to get out of this mess of a team right now. I mean, can't really blame him. The Dodgers, at the Dodgers, the Padres bullpen is kind of a mess. They just signed Yuki Matsui and, uh, uh, what's his name? W- Woosuk Go? Is that his name? The Korean one? There's that again, guy. You're, again, again, you're asking me about moves Tom. that I'm not going to have any idea about, Tony. Listen, I like <laughs> to consider ourselves baseball savants. We have our own baseball podcast. I'm not going to know about that move. I am very sorry. You're not educated in the Pacific Leagues. Shame. Now you won't no, know how but, Trevor uh, Bauer does next year. Yeah, because no one's going to sign him this offseason. He was bitching and moaning about that on Twitter recently. Real quickly, yeah, exactly. as you're mentioning the three opt-outs, the lyrics to No Role Models by J. Cole come to mind. They go, fool me one time, shame on you. Fool me twice, can't put the blame on you. Fool me three times, f*** the peace sign, load the chopper, let it rain on you. Those are for the three opt-outs. Because <laughs> <laughs> that's how I foresee it going. It's like, oh, well, yeah, fool me once. Yeah, yeah, I fooled you. And it's like, oh, you know what? F*** this. I'm, I'm out. <laughs> Does not know Pacific League baseball, but absolutely nails J. Cole lyrics whenever they come up. God, imagine if he exercises that third-year opt-out. Like, he's, you've been here for the first two years, man. Come on, just, just truck it out. Get the remainder of that contract. You're almost there. Oh, God. Either way, that's a funny move. Let's keep it funny. The Rangers, in an effort to shore up their bullpen and not wants to be one-upped by their interstate rivals, picked up David Robertson for one year at $11.5 million, and they're also following the Dodger-wide trend of deferring money for no f- reason. So $5 million of this $11 million contract is deferred. I-, I don't know what they could be using this $5 million for in the present that necessitates them to pay David Robertson this later, but hey... You're the boss, Chris Young. You, you know you just built a World Series winner in Texas. I'm not gonna question it. Just a little confused is all, especially when Robertson crashed hard at the end of last year. Uh, but hey, you have a deep enough bullpen. He doesn't need to close. It could still be Leclerc. I, I, I'm pretty sure the five million dollars that they're deferring, Tony, it's gonna be given. Chris Young is gonna give it to himself as a way to say thank you, myself, for giving the Rangers their first World Series title. Oh, yeah, you got to get the Christmas bonuses out somehow and might as well come out of David Robertson's paycheck. Oh, my God. But last but most, certainly not least, we're going to go to a pair of moves from everybody's favorite punching bag. Who's ready for some L.A. Angels moves? They re-signed Matt Moore. They brought him back for one year, $9 million. Tom, this, I'm going to be honest, this might be my favorite deal on this board. Because if you remember, last year they signed him to a one-year, I think it was $6.5 million deal. And then in that flurry of moves where the team just gave up, they cut him. And then he was picked up. I believe it was Cleveland that took him. It was either Cleveland or Cincinnati. And he was good for them, too. And now the Angels brought him back. And you got to imagine he had to demand a raise after being released from the team last year. So they paid him $9 million now. I mean, hey, good for you, Mac. Get that back. I just hope they release you this time and you go to a good team and stay there. Just get the hell out of L.A., man. The Angels are not going to be your friend. Listen, Artie I, Moreno Tony, is not the move. Yeah, I, I'm sorry to interrupt you because I know you have a lot to say about Robert Stevenson. You're a savant on him. You ha- you're pretty much an encyclopedia of Robert Stevenson content. Oh, yeah. 
But he's, his baseball reference page is in front of me, yes. I just want to point this out about Matt Moore. I completely forgot he left the Angels last year, and that was probably a move out of mercy for trying to keep his career on the revive. He just signed back with him. I get he's getting a raise, but he must be a masochist. He must love the sheer pain and anguish that it is for pitching with the Los Angeles Angels organization. Again, where careers go to die, and you don't become an angel after your career dies. No, 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 no. Your career goes straight to hell as a Los Angeles angel, because there is no other place you can go afterwards, because you've fallen off so hard because the angels in Artie Moreno have literally sapped the living life out of you that you have nowhere else to go. You're in the clutches of purgatory or you're down in hell. It's where careers go to die. Somehow his career hasn't died yet because he actually had a good year last year. But all I'm saying is I, I, I know you're getting a raise. What did you like about the angels last year that makes you want to go back to them after they dumped your ass because they sucked so bad? Must be a masochist. I'm sorry. Probably money. I mean, the reliever market was kind of screwy this year. I got to imagine he could have gotten more somewhere. Maybe not north of $9 million because you just saw David Robertson fetch 11 And I don't know. Maybe he just, maybe he's got family out there. I don't know. I don't know Matt Moore's story, but I will say it is pretty funny that he went back after all that. This is like that toxic, like, couple you knew in high school that's clearly bad for each other and broke up. 15 times from freshman to senior year, but still get back together because, oh, they love this, they love that about them. Like, no, you hate him, and you told me two days ago. You're toxic. Get out of here. I say to the Angels, not Matt Moore. Matt Moore does not seem like a toxic person. Who does seem like a toxic person is Artie Moreno, because Matt Moore was not his only fish that he caught. <laughs> no, 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 Tom. He has gotten the reliever of the future. You mentioned him earlier. You know him. You love him. Bob Steve, also known as Robert Stevenson. <laughs> that, was, that sounded funnier in my head. Uh, anyway, Robert Stevenson is apparently going to be their answer at closer or long relief or something. I don't know how else you justify this. They give him a three-year, $33 million deal. That is an $11 million AAV for Robert Stevenson. I'm just going to be honest, man. I don't get it. He's had flashes of greatness. Even in Coors Field, I remember he was always that like sleeper pick to break out for the Rockies one year because he had, I think I think it's a good slider. I'm going to look this up on Baseball Savant right now because now I'm way too curious. I need to be the, the biggest Robert Stevenson fan, like you said earlier, Tom. I need to find out which of his pitches was considered really good. But in Stevenson's defense, he went to Tampa Bay halfway through last season and was unironically really good. 2-3-5 ERA in just under 40 innings, pitched to an ERA plus of 179 with 60 strikeouts. Those have got to be the best numbers of his career, and he parlayed that into a nice contract. So from his perspective, nice, nice. I'm happy for him. Good for Bob, Steve. For the Angels, what the f*** are you doing? <laughs> this is giving me disturbing shades of their Huston Street deal, except Huston Street actually had pedigree when they gave him that contract. Robert Stevenson has decent underlying numbers, actually better than I thought. His fastball velo is actually in the 90th percentile, and his expected ERA for all of last season was 2.73. This was it. It was his cutter-slider combo that had folks salivating, and his fastball could actually get up there, so he's got the tools. I'm just going to be real, though. I don't think the Angels are the team to bring it out. 
I'm not going to spend much more time on a Robert Stevenson deal, but I just wanted to bring this up because this reeks of another Artie Moreno patchwork that's going to blow up in his face in a little under a year. I hope he succeeds for Bobby Steve's case, but I don't trust the Angels. You know, I'm going to bring this up because I'm going to lift the curtain up real quickly. We said we were going to breeze through a bunch of these deals. We did not. We couldn't help ourselves (laughs) when talking about the Los Angeles Angels. We wanted to ravage in their pain. Maybe we're masochists like Matt Moore. We couldn't (laughs) help ourselves, but want to feel the pain and suffering of the Los Angeles Angels organization. Now, before you say that you are a masochist, Tony, I'm going to move on and talk about four of the haha deals that we have as Yankees fans everywhere. And I'm just going to outline them and then we'll briefly, I'm going to say briefly, but we'll probably spend 15 minutes on it because we can't help ourselves. Briefly go over these. We're going to start off with Joey Gallo to the Washington Nationals for one year at $5 million with performance bonuses that he will not hit and an option for next year. I don't even know what the performance bonuses are. I don't need to look them up because I know he's not going to reach them. It's Joey Gallo we're talking about. <laughs> Unless it's like hit 10 home runs and you'll get $2 million, then what are we even doing here talking about performance bonuses? Get the hell out of here. Washington, I mean, listen, this is just clearly, and we're going to try and revive a career that's pretty much already dead candidate in Joey Gallo. All right. I mean, if you want to pay him $5 million, then you go for it. Uh, Aroldis Chapman to the Pittsburgh Pirates for one year at $10.5 million. Actually, this could kind of be a decent deal. He had a good year last year, except for when he got to Texas and kind of soiled himself, to say the least, throughout the second half of the year and partially in the playoffs as well. He did get a ring with the Rangers, so at least he had that from last year. Now he gets a $10.5 million deal. Remember, he kind of pulled this stunt last year, too. He signed with the Royals on this sort of kind of deal. He was trading in the middle of the offseason to a winning team, probably looking to do the exact same thing again this year as his fastball slowly dwindles a slow death that went from 105, 106 at one point, probably down to like 96 at this point right now. But don't worry. His lack of control, still there. That is at least consistent without his throughout his career and will be consistent in Pittsburgh. Mm-hmm. Gary Sanchez, oh my God, speaking of overpayments, the Milwaukee Brewers struck it again. One year, $7 million <laughs> with a mutual option for Gary Sanchez. And I understand the catcher market is very scarce. But what are we doing paying Gary Sanchez $7 million? I get he looked like he was having a revival, like he was perf- having his own performance of Jesus Christ Superstar with the San Diego Padres for about a week last season. But then reality set in, and then I don't believe he had a very good year after that. I can actually pull up his numbers to prove my theory. What were his final numbers, Tom? I'm so glad you asked, Tom. With the San Diego Padres, okay, he actually did somewhat better. He had an OPS plus that was actually over 100. It was 116. 72 games, 19 home runs. Okay, yeah, the slash line is bad. 218, 292, 500 slugging isn't bad. So I guess they're looking for pop. I guess that's the only thing they really got going for them in Milwaukee because we already know their contact right out the window. Aaron Hicks, oh God, we're talking about the Angels again. Holy Aaron Hicks to the Angels for one year. Uh, I'm 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 not giving into masochism, Tony. You you can take that one if you want. Talk about these deals how you see fit. Oh, I gladly will. I'll just shoot straight. Don't have much to say about Gallo and Chapman. Chapman, you took the words out of my mouth. It's a good deal for Pittsburgh. Plus, Chapman could parlay it into another midseason trade. Gallo, I see it as like when they signed Kyle Schwarber, just like, hey, 
He could use a rebound, and then he got traded, and then he's been amazing ever since. Is that going to happen to Joey Gallo? Probably not. But, hey, if it does, you know what? Good for him. He seems like a good dude. Uh, the other two. Uh, first of all, Milwaukee, what the f*** are you doing? Like, I, I like the idea of having a consistent everyday DH, but for a backup catcher, I'm sure there are better options you could have gotten in terms of, you know, more defense-centered catchers. You know, Willie Contreras is, is bat-first, even though he's become a better fielder. But I will say this. There's two interesting factors that I like about this Milwaukee deal. Number one, Sanchez was the preferred catcher to Blake Snell last year, which leads me to believe that his... Overall defense and play calling behind the plate has at least gotten marginally better. If that's the case, you know, good for them. That's honestly a pretty good get. And number two, a trend I've noticed for the past couple years with the Brewers now is their ability to fix catchers. If you're looking for a more in-depth explanation, there's a video on YouTube by a user Foolish Bailey talked about the Milwaukee Brewers catching factory, I think it's called, basically outlined how the, like, the men behind the scenes have been able to help Brewers catchers who were previously terrible fielders kind of turn it all around to become great framers, good plate protectors, brought up guys like Omar Narvaez and the like, and sort of revamped them a little bit. They just did it this year with William Contreras, who was an awful fielder in Atlanta and is now pretty damn good. Possibly they could do it with Gary Sanchez, too. Gary Sanchez, in 72 games with the San Diego Padres, by far his highest career D-War, according to baseball reference, 1.2 in 72 games. Ooh. So his defensive numbers did get much, much better. Great point uh, that you made. Please continue. It's come a long way from missing the tag on Jonathan VR at home plate. Yes, it still hurts. Oh, Please God. don't ask me about it. I was at that f game with a Mets fan. It wasn't fun. <laughs> I was this close from from throwing her like a javelin from the nosebleeds. <laughs> oh my god. Either way, that's all I gotta say about Gary Sanchez. I don't like it at the outset, but there are like little trinkets, little idiosyncrasies that I think it may work. Number two, Aaron Hicks. Oh, I can't get through that one without laughing. Angels, you've outdone yourselves, boys. You've outdone yourselves. Oh man. Wow, we lost the best player on earth and our most recognizable face outside of Mike Trout. How are we ever going to replace this? Aaron Hicks, one-year deal. That'll fix it. <laughs> 34-year-old Aaron Hicks is going to solve our problems. <laughs> I, I, I'm so sorry. I... <laughs> I'm more so laughing at the Angels than I am at Aaron Hicks. I, I'm, I'm more shocked he even still has the chance to get a job. But, oh my god, the, I love that the Angels are this desperate. It's so funny to me. It makes me feel so bad for Trout. Can we just hold, like, a Viking funeral for his career at this point? Until he gets traded, can we just take, like, a Mike Trout bat, put it on a boat, and light it on fire at sea? I feel like that's the only way we could send this off. And I don't, I, I don't even have that much to say about the deal. It's a one-year deal for Hicks. I just wanted to laugh at the Angels again. I'll do you one better. I'll play Taps in memory of Mike Trout's once promising career in trying to make the postseason. I'd like to point out Tony put his hand over his heart while Taps was playing for those six seconds. Gotta show respect. I don't have a cap to tip, so that's the best I could do. Well, anyway, I'm, I'm, I'm glad you showed a sign of respect because I wasn't doing that because it's the Los Angeles Angels we're talking about. <laughs> I was more so showing respect to Trout than the Angels. I feel like he deserves it more than Artie Moreno. That's a good point. Oh, boy. 
Either way, that will do it for our major headline segment. That's all the deals. Hope y'all enjoyed it. Now it is time to get to probably the biggest story of the past couple weeks, and that is the fact that, Tom, we got a couple new Hall of Famers on the ballot. Or off the ballot, I suppose. Yeah, they're not on the ballot again for next year. They're off the ballot. The results came in a couple weeks back, and Adrian Beltre, Todd Helton, and surprisingly, Joe Maurer are all Hall of Famers after one, six, and one try, respectively. There's a lot to go through here. We're probably not going to spend too, too much time on it, but there's still a couple interesting points to break down. Uh, my least favorite one, my least favorite one, is that one name I didn't mention in the list of people that got in was Billy Wagner. He did jump. He did have a nice jump from last year to this year, and he was this close from making it in. If you don't remember, you need 75% of the vote to get in. Wagner sits at 738 Next year is his 10th and final year, very notorious for seeing last-minute jumps for guys who might make it. It's helped guys like Edgar Martinez, Jim Rice, and Larry Walker get in over the past couple years. No doubt in my mind Wagner's going to be the next one. If he doesn't make it after this, it's got to be for some, like, some he gets arrested for or some late-stage steroid allegations. He's a shoe-in for next year. But, you know, that's my biggest takeaway from the folks that didn't get in. We, I, the only reason I skipped over Beltre, Maurer, and uh, Helton is because in our predictions, we did talk a bit about them, and I don't want to risk, you know, running in those same circles. So, Tom, I'm going to throw it to you. Yes, the first thing I will say is congratulations, of course, are in order for Adrian Beltre, Todd Helton, and Joe Maurer for making it into the Hall of Fame. Beltre getting 95.1% of the vote, and listen, I'm not saying he had to be unanimous, but who are the 4.9% of people that didn't think he was a Hall of Famer? I want to know their reasoning, and I want to know their names, because those are <laughs> cowards that need to have their names thrown out into the baseball void, and they should probably lose their privilege to vote, because who doesn't I second this. Adrian Beltre is a Hall of Famer? Just saying. I don't need to go through his career accolades to even outline them. They know who they are. He got in his first try with 95%. What are we doing here? Todd Helton, on the other hand, is another factor as to why the Coors field effect, I believe, is dying off. With Hall of Fame ballot voters, thank God. That should bode well for Nolan Arenado eventually when he um, is up for election, which honestly he should probably get him fairly easily, being his defensive prowess and his offensive numbers that he was able to maintain with his career with the St. Louis Cardinals at this point in time. But that'll bode well for him. It's good to see that people, I think, are starting to kind of lean away from that because really, you can't control that. You could say Todd Helton could have done that later on to prove his worth, but honestly, who cares? He brought a World Series appearance to a team that was void of a World Series appearance in 2000, up to 2007 through his franchise's history. He's been with them through the long haul. He's Mr. Rocky. Good for him. Congratulations. Only thing I'll say about Joe Maurer is, I think we mentioned this, we did not expect him to make it on his first try. Did we think he was a Hall of Famer based on our ballot voting? Yes. And by ballot voting, I mean we did a mock ballot because obviously our votes don't count. We're schmucks. But Joe Maurer did get yeses from me and Tony, and he got yeses from 76.1% of BBWAA <laughs> voters. Also good for him. If I was thinking about first-time candidates, I would not expect Joe Maurer to have gotten that. But you know what? He's a first ballot Hall of Famer. He could say that. He's one of the premier catchers of his age, and that will only bode well for Yadier Molina in a few years, but even better probably for Buster Posey, 
who career war-wise and otherwise, maybe not. That's kind of around the range of a Thurman Munson, I think, in terms of career stats and all that stuff. But Buster Posey is obviously one of the best catchers of his era. Definitely one of the best, if not the best catcher from the 2010s. And so this can only be a good sign for Buster Posey when one day, hopefully he'll have his plaque enshrined in Cooperstown. Billy Wagner just missing at 73.8%. Tony already said it. He's pretty much a shoe in for next year, so I'm going to move on from that. Gary Sheffield fell off, though. He only got 63.9%. I guarantee if he had two more years, he would have probably been very close, but I think he would have snuck in. Over the past two years, he saw his numbers go up from 40.6% in 2022, that was his eighth year, to 55% in 2023, 63.9% of the vote. That's where he ended in 2024. Accolades, of course, he had 500 career home runs over that, close to 3,000 hits, a fantastic slash line, a feared hitter. He's got a lot of accolades, nine all-star appearances, he won a World Series. He should be a Hall of Famer, but of course, because of steroid allegations, again, he never tested positive in any tests and was never suspended by Major League Baseball, which is at least my recognition of whether somebody should be a Hall of Famer, isn't going to get in because baseball writers are stubborn. But at least it does show that guys who are kind of on the teetering fence of steroids are getting a little bit more love, especially if their case is kind of up in the air, whether or not they actually did anything or not. So it's sad for Gary Sheffield. Maybe he can get in on a committee, but that's probably unlikely if they believe he did steroids as well, because the former players extremely hate guys who cheated in the past more so than writers, which is probably why we'll never see Roger Clemens or Barry Bonds get into the Hall of Fame because those guys hate those should-be Hall of Famers more than the writers. There's some other points that we want to make here, but I've talked for long enough, so I'm going to throw it to Tony. That's a shame, too, because the bullet point just after this next one, I was kind of hoping you would take. Oh, damn. I mean, listen, I can jump right into that if you want. I can skip over Andrew Jones for now. Go ahead. I'll, I'll take Jones. I want you to talk about your favoritest player of all time on the ballot, especially since it ties back to something you were talking about earlier with Jose Altuve. <laughs> that favorist comes with an asterisk. Oh, that's so ironic because hey. Carlos Beltran does have Z- an asterisk on his career, which arguably is worse than steroids. <laughs> and that has to do with a little thing called the 2017 Houston Astros cheating scandal where they went bang, bang, bang. Right on the trash cans. And now I have a very, very big problem with how Carlos Beltran was voted upon. I do not view him as a Hall of Famer. Not because of his accolades, but because of the cheating scandal. We know his role, at least it's rumored to be, and I think it's pretty much confirmed at this rate, was extremely prominent in the Astros organization for seeing them use their methods that they did to cheat in 2017 and ultimately get their BS title. Year one, he scored at 46.7% of the vote. He would have been a first ballot Hall of Famer otherwise. This year, he got 57.1% of the vote, which to me, if he's going to get jump pretty much 10%, signifies that he will be a Hall of Famer one day. And to the writers of Major League Baseball, the BBWAA, this is why I have to give you. I'm going to give you a super F. (laughs) They get a super F for this. (laughs) Because they are literally being hypocrites, I think, here. You are going to penalize guys who are only accused of cheating when you have a known cheater who is eventually going to make it to the Hall of Fame. You have a few known cheaters who are going to make it to the Hall of Fame with this Astro scandal. 
and all your penalty is going to be is sitting them out of the Hall of Fame for a couple of years, or maybe getting into the Hall of Fame on their last try. That doesn't do anything. At the end of the day, they're still going to be a Hall of Famer. It's not going to matter. And you can argue, well, their stuff is already in the Hall of Fame, they technically have the title still, blah 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 blah. I don't give a about that. You can make the same case that Barry Bonds is technically a Hall of Famer at this rate, just because he sits at the top of the all-time home run list. This is why I was tying back to with the Jose Altuve discussion that we had probably over an hour ago at this rate. He's going to be a future Hall of Famer one day because that's how he projects. He might even project more as a lock-in Hall of Famer than Carlos Beltran based on statistics. Beltran eventually will be a Hall of Famer because these BBWAA voters are going to be hypocrites and elect him to the Hall of Fame even though they know they cheated. Now, maybe, just maybe, I'm ho- I'm holding on to a sliver of hope. This won't happen. But for whatever reason, everybody's forgiving it. Maybe because they're under pressure of Major League Baseball to sweep it under the rug. I don't know. I'm just speculating. Maybe it's because Major League Baseball recognizes that this is still a title. So they're maybe like, yeah, crap. Why not give them the Hall of Fame? Because technically, it's still a legit title in Major League Baseball's eyes. I think I said MLB Baseball, by the way, a sentence ago. So my apologies. I was kind of the grammar police about that in like the first five minutes of the episode. <laughs> oh, damn it. Yeah, I probably already did over the course of the episode, and we didn't even know this. My bad. (laughs) But I'll end with this. He should not be a Hall of Famer, and the writers should be ashamed of themselves for putting themselves in the position to do that. But that's just my opinion. Overwhelmingly, he's probably going to be a Hall of Famer, and all the writers are going to prove me wrong. Obviously, their opinion matters more than mine does. It doesn't mean I think their opinion is right. Here's my counter-argument. I'm going to try and play devil's advocate for a bit here, but it's going to be a really devil's advocacy because I'm going to be insulting the party I'm playing devil's advocate for. But baseball, baseball in and of itself, has been hypocritical when it comes to things like Hall of Famers and legacy literally forever. You remember the Black Sox scandal? You remember Pete Rose How recently with Bonds and Clemens? Guys have been shut out of the hall and barred from ever interacting with baseball or its affiliates again for reasons that do not correlate to cheating. In the past, the Black Sox scandal is the exception to this. Obviously, they fixed the World Series, and even though not everyone on that team cheated, Shoeless Joe couldn't read, but that's a story for another day. What about Pete Rose? Nothing to do with cheating in terms of giving his team an unfair advantage, just a little bit of gambling, and all of a sudden he's completely barred from the hall. When he, among everybody on that list, has just as good a right to be there. These writers have been hypocritical literally since before World War II, and they are going to continue being that way until the sun burns out. So the fact that they're giving Carlos Beltran this big boost in vote getting doesn't really surprise me. I think what's also helping that case is that Beltran was never specifically named in any sort of report. No player really was. It was always just kind of speculated because they said, oh, you know, an elder statesman player on the team was uh, was seen as the ringleader of the operation. Everybody just kind of assumed, oh, you know, elder statesman, guy looking for a World Series title, that's got to be Carlos Beltran. You know, to be fair, I jumped on that bandwagon too. I didn't put him on my ballot. I didn't put Carlos Beltran for that reason, but I think voters are sending a very clear message. He went from 46.7% to 57.1%, so he actually jumped more than 10%, that not only will he be a Hall of Famer, he's going to be a Hall of Famer soon. Probably not next year, but I imagine around year four or five he actually gets in. 
And that basically does away with any sort of stigma that any current Astros are going to have to face when they make it to the ballot. If they make it to the ballot. Altuve, Whalen, he'll definitely get in. That's basically all I've got to say about Carlos Beltran. Let's leave Carlos Beltran on the shelf and just move on. I mentioned Andrew Jones earlier, so I'll throw my hat in the ring about him. He did not take the leap that I nor anybody else really was expecting. He went from 58.1 last year to just 61.6 this year. Not a huge leap, especially not for a guy in his seventh year on the ballot. Not good, but also not dire. He's got three years left to make up about 15%. If there are some lean ballots coming soon, which, knock on wood, there should be, he should be able to make at least minimal jumps. And then if he gets that 10th year surge, he'll be in. We've talked about this a million times. It'd be a crime if he wasn't in 400 home runs, the best defensive center fielder of all time, integral part of a Braves dynasty, petered off big time at the end of his career. But if we're going to, if we just let Joe Maurer into the Hall of Fame on his first ballot, you better not be questioning Andrew Jones. Trust me, if he gets into the Hall of Fame and Andrew Jones doesn't, then I'm sorry, there's something wrong. Well, there's already something wrong with the system. The fact that Jorge Posada was a one and done, but Joe Maurer can get in just like that. But that's the bias Yankee fan talking. Sue me. <laughs> Nevertheless, Jones didn't get in, but I imagine his chances are still somewhat alive. You know, not not dead in the water, but not as good as they could have been. You know, uh, someone else whose chances aren't as good as they could have been. <laughs> Alex Rodriguez, Alex Rodriguez, Alex Rodriguez. He went from 35.7 last year, his first year on the ballot, to a whopping, oh, excuse me, his second year on the ballot, to a whopping, drum roll please, 34.8%. That's right, he went down. <laughs> I'm sorry, I love watching the downfall arcs of people who I do not care about. And seeing A-Rod stagnate on a ballot that saw Carlos Beltran jump 11%, that's just hilarious to me, man. That's absolutely hysterical. Manny Ramirez had the same thing happen to him. He just kind of... He didn't move. If anything, he went down. Manny stuck at 32.5%, but unlike A-Rod, Manny is in the eighth year of his eligibility. He's definitely falling off. A-Rod needs to make some progress and fast to avoid the same fate. Do I think it's going to happen? I'm going to say maybe. I'm going to say that's a solid maybe for A-Rod still. He's still only in his third year. His case isn't dead in the water. He still has time to make up that ground, but I don't know if he makes it by then. <laughs> uh, then two more guys really quick I want to go over, and then I'm going to shut up. I've been talking forever. Uh, Chase Utley, one of my picks to get in, and one of my favorites, uh, probably my favorite newcomer on this ballot, period, not named Adrian Beltre anyway, had a respectable showing in his first time on the ballot at 28.8%. I feel like Utley's going to follow a similar arc to Scott Rowland. I feel like we said that last episode, or not last episode, excuse me, when we made up our mock ballots. You know, Utley and Rowland are very similar players, very gritty, very, you know, sabermetric darling type. Uh, and Utley, in particular, you know, fan favorite in Philly, gold gloves, silver slugger, butt ton of war, even if he didn't have all the counting stats. It's the intangibles that count, and Utley was probably the best second baseman of his generation, at least one of them. I feel like he gets in eventually. The more lean ballots there are, the more the writers are going to realize, you know, he never did steroids, heart and soul of a city. He hit a bunch of the benchmarks that a bunch of today's sabermetric darlings only dream of hitting. Solid first showing. I'm just going to hope for some improvement within the next few years, you know? 
And then lastly, the last newcomer I want to talk about, David Wright. Just barely made the ballot. I also just realized I misspelled ballot on the rundown. I spelled ballet. God damn it, Tony. You also spelled barely uh, wrong very, very poorly. No, I didn't. What are you talking Because I, I added a couple Ys? You added a lot of Ys. Yeah, I added some Ys, but if you take away the oh, Ys... Oh, okay. I'm sorry, I'm sorry. It still spells bare. I, I wanted to add the emphasis. Like, he barely stayed on because David Wright only got 6.2% of the vote. I thought... I did not think he was going to get it by any means, but I thought he'd get more than 24 votes. That is a stone's throw away from Tory Hunter. Tory Hunter finished with more, actually. So not a good showing for Captain America. That's really all I'll say. I never expected him to get in. I was just shocked at how little folks actually turned up for him. But other than that, that's really all I wanted to say about the Hall of Fame. I just talked for a while. Tom, if you've got any lasting thoughts on the Hall of Fame, please hit me with them right now. So I'll start with Andrew Jones here, Tony. Not a big leap at all. And I'm pretty sure this is like his seventh year on the ballot. So it's not going to prove very mm -hmm. fruitful for him to only jump about 3.5%. I think part of what turned people off was the, the some of the newcomers that were Beltray and Maurer. So it may have turned some people who were maybe just giving Jones the vote to kind of pass by. He, they were giving their votes to Maurer and Beltray. I really don't know. It's not great that it's that much of a jump, but at least it's a jump. At least he got above 60%. I do think he'll finish off in the 10th year as a Hall of Famer. Larry Walker made a huge jump. I think it was like 20% to become a Hall of Famer. He doesn't even need that. He needs about 14, 15%, and then he will be in the Hall of Fame. So I think Andrew Jones will finish it off at some point. A-Rod, I don't even, I mean, his the number went down. I, I don't think I really need to speak about that. I could go on a whole nother rant about cheaters and whatnot, but... I already did enough of that. I don't need to go on about it anymore. David Wright, I will say, at least he survived. Will he ever be a Hall of Famer? No. If, will he be Hall of Very Good? Yes. Unfortunately, they didn't build that in Cooperstown, and that doesn't exist. But at least one day he'll have his number retired by the New York Mets. So at least he will have that. He is obviously still Captain America, that franchise icon, that WBC icon. He does have that going for him. As far as Chase Utley goes, again, his case was kind of, we were teetering on whether or not we were going to give him a vote. 28%, you say it's decent, I say it's kind of poor of a first showing, but then again, we've had guys that started even lower and are going to be Hall of Famers, like Billy Wagner. So, I mean, he's in an alright position. The Sabermetrics, I think, with more cases and some weaker classes potentially in the future, he can sneak in. Maybe at some point. At the very least, he should have a decent showing. But I will say this. If Jeff Kent did not get into the Hall of Fame, and he's kind of one of the best second basemen of all time and the best power-hitting second baseman of all time, Chase Utley may or may not get in. Because I think Jeff Kent has the better resume, not necessarily the analytics, but on paper, Jeff Kent's career is better. Chase Utley, though, probably is seen a little bit better in the media. I'd say even a lot of it better. Uh, than Jeff Kent was. I don't know by how much. I know the fans don't like Utley too much for the antics he pulled when he was a Dodger. Oh, well, it's not the fans who really vote for the Hall of Famers anyway. So it doesn't matter at the end of the day. Tony, real quickly, before we actually end the episode, next year, we've got two new Hall of Fame candidates that should, I think, be first ballot Hall of Famers, but I want your opinion on whether it's actually going to happen or not. There's some other interesting candidates too, like Ian Kinsler, 
will have the kind of same debate going on about Chase Utley. And it's going to be funny to see both of them on there because they were two of the best second basemen of their era and they might both miss out. And they're both kind of sabermetric darlings in a way. So that'll be great to kind of see them duke it out. Even Dustin Pedroia will be added to the ballot. That's a David Wright situation. So there's going to be some good names that fall off. But the two names, Ichiro Suzuki, I think that's an instant lock for yes. Um, and Kendris see- Morales. <laughs> Who could have forgot? about the Los Angeles <laughs> Angel that tore his ACL jumping on home plate after a walk-off home run in the middle of June. <laughs> Who could forget such an icon like that? No. CeCe Sabathia. Yeah, CeCe Sabathia is the other one I'm talking about. Please ra- go on about Kendrys Morales. I know you've got a lot to say. Yeah, of course. I'm Kendrys Morales' biggest fan. That ACL he broke is actually in the Hall of Fame right now. Oh, my God. Either way. <laughs> I'm not even going to talk about Ichiro because it's Ichiro. Like I'll save, I'll save kind of my hot take about Ichiro for next year. But spoiler Uh-oh. alert: I, I remember hearing people whispering a couple of years ago that he should be the like the next unanimous Hall of Famer. Not only do I not think that's going to happen, but I don't think Ichiro really deserves that. Great player, Hall of Famer, not denying that. But we'll get to that when we get to that next year. Sabathia is interesting. I'm a Yankee fan. I love CC Sabathia with all my heart. I think he's the best pitcher the Yankees have had in my lifetime that I saw the entire career of, hence I'm not counting Clements and Pettit. Cole's on his way there, but in terms of 10 years I saw to their entirety, CeCe had an amazing run with the Yankees. My only worry is that voters are going to be averse to his ERA. He had a couple too many years that started with a four, and his career ERA is three. 3.72. I think his biggest argument, CeCe Sabathia's, just was the case with every single year he was up for a Cy Young, is going to be pure, raw numbers. 250 wins, and of course, 3,000 strikeouts. He is the last in a long line of power pitchers from that era that seems to sadly be dying out with guys like that, you know, like Garrett Cole, being a more rare breed. I think Sabathia is a really interesting case. If you put a gun to my head, I'd probably say yes, he's a Hall of Famer to maybe push that envelope as to the threshold of starters who could get in, because if we're letting in a guy whose ERA is bordering four, that should open it for some other pitchers, I would say, later on down the line. But I think CeCe's also got some intangibles. You know, he's got those numbers, like the 250 and the 3000, he's got a Cy Young, he's got a World Series, and he's also just really, really, really well-loved around the game. Every locker room he's ever been in, all three of them. You know, he's a guy that would stick up for the entire team. He's great. I'm pretty sure he still has that podcast right now with Ryan Rucco. Super likable guy, beloved around the game. Do I think he's going to be a first ballot Hall of Famer? That's a maybe. But I do think eventually he gets in. I He's on the fence for me. He's not like a slam dunk. But if Joe Maurer got in, I think that helps Sabathia a lot. That's my long-winded take. In terms of pitchers with an ERA of CC Sabathia's caliber, which is 374, there are only three pitchers that have an ERA that is exactly that or higher that are in the Hall of Fame. Hank O'Day is one of them with a 374 ERA. And you might be wondering to yourself, who the f*** is Hank O'Day? And I'm glad you asked, because he was not inducted as a player. In fact, he was inducted as an umpire, and he umpired back in when... <laughs> was his reign, uh, the 1800s. He died in 1935, and I guess he was one of the best umpires in the day. I, I couldn't tell you anything about Hank O'Day 
Go look him up on Wikipedia if he if he has a Wikipedia page. He was inducted in 2013, surprisingly enough. So somewhat of a recent induction. I don't know how it took him that long to get into the Hall of Fame, but I digress. Mm. The other two guys are actually pitchers. Uh, one of them is Red Ruffing, a, another Yankees icon, mm. probably more known for his postseason performances more than his regular season performances because they weren't really anything to scuff at in the regular season. He had an ERA of 3.8. And speaking of postseason performances, Tony, who do you think is the number one on this list in terms of the pitcher with the highest ERA in the Hall of Fame? This actually sounds familiar, and the fact that you said postseason leads me to believe that it's Jack Morris. (laughs) Well, you would be absolutely correct. It is Jack Morris. Inducted in 2018, 3.9 ERA on the dot. And if he didn't have his postseason performances... He would not be discussed as a Hall of Famer. In fact, he would not be a Hall of Famer. So good for him for having that. CeCe Sabathia, that being said, would have the third highest ERA of all time for a Hall of Famer. That being said, CeCe Sabathia has 251 career wins, so he's over the 250 threshold. 62.3 war isn't anything to scuff at, and he also has over 3,000 strikeouts. So he meets those intangible numbers that should qualify a pitcher for the Hall of Fame. So he's got that on his side, and I'm not going to disagree with anybody who says CeCe Sabathia should be a Hall of Famer, because I do believe he is a Hall of Famer. Yes, I'm probably biased in that regard, but I don't care. CeCe Sabathia is a Hall of Famer in my books. All right, fair enough. We'll definitely discuss more about him and more very willing candidates like Kendris Morales, like Fernando Rodney. Come next year when the ballot comes out. Dude, I looked at the baseball reference page for 2025. There's some funny names on here, like uh, Pirates legend Francisco Liriano. I didn't even know some of these guys got to 10 years. Dude, Mets legend Jason Vargas. First ballot right there. First ballot right Uh, there. That's a first. This was the Hall of Fame of threatening. Yeah. I was about (laughs) to say if there was a Hall of Fame of threatening (laughs) beat reporters, he'd be first ballot. (laughs) <laughs> oh, poor Tim Healy. Tim Healy's a fantastic follow and a very great guy. Oh, yeah. So I feel so bad for him. <laughs> That's a hilarious story, though. Let's be real. Oh, it's hilarious. Oh, I'm God. not I'm not going to lie. A story like that always makes me chuckle. Uh, but to have <laughs> Jason Vargas, I don't give a about at all. To have Healy attached to that is terrible because, again, he really is a very, very great uh, baseball writer. He's actually, I believe, the head of the New York baseball, the New York State, I think BBWAA or something like that. He's in charge of something. You can look him up on Google <laughs> Tim Healy and you'll figure it out. It doesn't matter at this point in time. So does that mean Tim Healy gets, gets to vote for the Hall of Fame? <laughs> yeah, I'm pretty sure. You think Jason Vargas is going to be on his ballot? Should we call him in and ask him? <laughs> It'll be on his ballot. I doubt he's going to check it off. <laughs> <laughs> That would be the most ironic ever. I would love that. He's not going to do it, but that'd be so funny. That would be the ultimate checkmate in that situation that would last years at this point. Imagine if they still have beef and he's the only person who puts a check mark next to Jason Vargas's name. <laughs> Almost out of pity, like a sympathy vote. That'd be hilarious. I would honestly have to applaud that. I usually am not in favor of stupid votes like that. I would honestly support that one. That would be... The ultimate checkmate. Right. 
I am completely fine with that, Tim. You go ahead and do that, and I'll give you your flying colors a year from now. That being said, it's one <laughs> eleven in the morning on February 8th now, and we want to go to bed. Yeah, this is the end of yes. episode 84 of the Diamond Duo podcast. Tony, any parting words? Uh, parting words, parting words, parting words. Not much. Um, Enjoy the rest of the offseason. Pitchers and catchers is coming up sooner than you oh, know yeah. it. And then spring training, folks. Spring training this month. Cannot wait. Can't wait to the days I'm driving home and there's an afternoon game still on. That is going to be amazing, especially after daylight savings and it's not pitch black when I'm driving home. That's going to be nice. But that all aside. Thank you so much for listening. Yes, and I cannot wait inevitably until the weekend when Blake Snell and Cody Bellinger sign with their respective teams and they make our podcast become outdated immediately. Cannot wait for that to happen because that is just how (laughs) this works. If you're not familiar with our lore and our terrible, terrible luck when it comes to recording and timing... It's going to happen. Maybe it'll even come across in the editing process. But that being said, I don't, don't want to jinx that. anything else. Yeah, yeah. They're going to sign tomorrow. <laughs> I, I know. I already said that. That being said, this was episode 84 of the Diamond Duo podcast. For Tony Puglisi, I'm Tom Barrow. Make sure to go follow us on social media at the Diamond Duo podcast on Instagram at Diamond Duo pod on Twitter to see when we post our newest episodes. Yay. Until then, we hope that you have enjoyed this episode thoroughly. And if you are a first-time listener, thank you so much. Hopefully, you'll become a long-time listener of the Diamond Duo Podcast. We will talk to you in the next episode. Take care, folks.